couple of quick things that, you know, we're still bitter, so don't bring up hockey to us right now. There's, uh, we, let, we let a good guy go, and so if you bring it up, my guys might walk out the door and just not even talk to you. Um, but I do want to say, I was pumped when I found out that I had the opportunity to speak here today to you. I literally was. And when uh, Garth asked me, it didn't take me very long to say, yes, let me tell you why. I always wanted to be an internationally known speaker. And so today, today this happens. Um, to be honest with you, um, the answer yes is something we all like. True? Yes. We love the answer yes. Um, if you think about it, when you were a little boy and you asked if you could stay a little longer at Jimmy's or maybe stay the night, when your mom said yes, you got excited. When you asked your dad to borrow the wheels for the first time and he threw you the keys, you were ecstatic about the yes. When you found out you made the hockey team and you saw your name, that yes meant something to you. When you asked that first girl on a date and she said, gentlemen, (laughs) you're already ahead of me. Yes, she did say yes to you. She did. And then... And then you got accepted into that program at school. It was a yes. You got your first job. It was a yes. You got your first raise. Yes. Then you asked that same girl, will you marry me? And she said, yes. You remember the first time you got the news and you asked over the phone, did we get the house? And the response was, yes. Are we pregnant? Yes. You get the idea. We love the answer yes. There's something about those three little letters that just, that just can make us smile, that can bring joy to our soul, that idea of yes. Because it's what? Not no. Nobody likes no. Nobody likes no. In our text this, this evening, I, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Second. Corinthians. And as you're flipping there, I'm going to tell you a little background about 2 Corinthians. But while you're flipping there, what you need to know is first, Corinth was basically the USA's version of Las Vegas. What happens in Vegas, we say? Anybody know the answer to that? Stays in Vegas. Well, the problem of the Corinthian church was that it was a sin city. What was going on there was uh, some pretty gross sin. A man was actually sleeping with his father's wife. There were married couples that weren't sleeping together at all. And there was feuds, and there was strife, and there was fighting. There were all these things going on. And, And this just aroused a fury in Paul, the writer of 2 Corinthians. So much though that he wrote a letter prior to 2 Corinthians called the severe letter. And in this severe letter, he actually rebuked them and called them to repentance and said all kinds of things that that should shake a man to the core to know that what they're doing is not acceptable before a holy and perfect God. But back then they didn't have mail service, so Paul had to send the letter with a friend and he sent it with a man named Titus who took the letter and he walked it the many-mile journey to the city of Corinth. Now for a moment, imagine you're Paul. And you're waiting to hear what the response will be 
Will they hear my rebuke? Will they repent of their sin? Will they acknowledge me? Are they going to hate me? Are they going to reject me? This is, this is all that's going through Paul's mind as he waits to hear back from Titus. And finally, Titus meets back with him and Titus reports, yes, they received it and they've repented. Can you imagine the joy for that yes for Paul? That he's won a brother rather than created an enemy? In that scene, we see the setting to the second Corinthian letter. It's Paul celebrating their repentance, but also dealing with some rowdy folk that begin to attack Paul's character because they said, if Paul really cared about us, he would have came himself. If Paul really loved us, he would have showed up. Do you ever feel that way? I have. I want people that, 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 that have, have some investment in me to come to me and to talk to me, whether it's a, a family in my church or it's my wife or my kids. I want them to, to, to talk to me face to face. And this is exactly what, what the people in Corinth were saying. There, there were some saying, Paul really didn't care. He, he didn't come personally. He sent a letter. Where's his affection for you? You shouldn't take this letter and repent. You should be angry at Paul. And so... Paul understands that there's the few that are beginning to stir up the others. And so Paul, while he's celebrating the repentance of the church, also has to deal with this issue. And that sets us right up to our text, beginning at verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Savannah and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it is through him that we have uttered out amen to God for his glory. Yes, yes, yes. See, Paul explains he, he was providentially hindered. I couldn't come. I, I wasn't saying yes and not doing it. I, my heart wanted to do it, but I, but I wasn't able to do it. What looks like no is always yes in Christ. Think about that for a moment. What looks like no is always Yes, in Christ. Sometimes the worst of circumstances happen and we can't figure out why, but then all of a sudden it starts to put all the puzzle pieces together. Let me feed this a little further for you for what Paul is saying. Paul says, if I would have come in my anger, I would have brought a rod and I would have started whipping things around. I would have been taking the strict rod to your back and trying to correct you my way. But in God's wisdom, in God's love, in God's kindness, he had me providentially hindered so I myself couldn't go. And I wrote a letter. And in that letter, the Holy Spirit softened your heart and you repented so that ultimately it was a yes rather than a no. The Lord brought repentance because God always says yes in Jesus Christ. Many of us may be familiar with the first 
chapter of 1 John, verse 9, where it says if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's always yes. The answer is always yes in Jesus. And that's exciting. Paul's admitting that that God is a better parent than he is. Now, as a dad of three, that's good news because sometimes I feel like I'm a horrible parent. Anybody else ever feel that way? Come on, guys. Anybody else ever feel that way? Am I alone here? I overreact. (laughs) I overreact because the Legos were left on the floor and I I crunched them under my toes when I was getting up in the middle of the night and I screamed and I said some things I shouldn't have said. My daughter now heard me. Now I'm doing repenting and my wife is yelling at me and I'm just getting louder. (laughs) But not so with God. He's always the perfect parent because his answer is always yes in Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you a story about a man at our church. I have permission to share this story. He's a dear friend of mine. He's a builder by by trade. One of the things I always say in my church is I love to watch Bill build. That's his name, Builder Bill. (laughs) Because in my line of work, in Pastor Garth's line of work, we don't always get to see the end result. We pour and pour and pour, and we don't always get to see the end result. But a builder does. He picks up his hammer, his nails, and, and what he builds, he, he sees and he can lean back and go, ah, a good day's work, a good project. Somebody now can live in this house. Well, Bill was a man that just astounded me with his abilities, but a couple of things happened in Bill's life. The first was when they were at the beach, And the kids were out playing, and they thought one of their daughters was with each of the other parents, and quickly discovered they didn't know where she was. They began to look in a panic, and they couldn't find her. Had somebody taken her? Where was she? And they began to run in opposite directions down the beach, calling her name, Natalie! Natalie! When finally they began to walk back towards the center where they had parted and they realized that her lifeless body had been ushered upon the shore. That was the first thing that happened in Bill's life. That Bill would tell you rocked his world. Tested his faith. Does God really always say yes? Even in situations like that? Bill wanted to curse God. He wanted to cry out to God to say, God, where are you? Where's your yes? But his faith was strong. He trusted God even in a moment that many of us can't even wrap our minds around. Many years later, his college-age daughter was on the highway heading to class when she was hit head-on by an oncoming semi. It was at that point that I entered the church. It was my first year of ministry. And there I am standing in an ER with a man and a wife who had just been found, who just found out from the doctor that their second daughter was now lifeless. I didn't know what to say. I was a young pastor. 
all I could do was put my arms around Bill and hug him and say, I love you, man. I love you. But Bill looked me in the eyes and he said, it's hard for me to say this, but I still trust Jesus. He preached to me that day. He preached to me that in Jesus, the answer is always yes when we may think it's no. So you can't control all the circumstances in your life. and You don't always know why things are happening. Maybe, maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe your kids are doing things you wish they wouldn't. Maybe you're losing some, some, uh, some status in your job or maybe potentially you're going to be laid off or, or whatever. And you're looking and saying, but I'm praying and where's God and all this? We never understand what the good parent is up to. But one thing is we can always trust him. Because the answer is always yes in Jesus. The answer is always yes. Why? It's a great text. But why is the answer always yes in Jesus? Look at verse 20. In verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 1, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter amen to God for His glory. Promises. We live in a day and age where we don't believe anybody. Because promises don't mean anything. When when you buy a product, right, you buy that new flat screen television that now is curved, right, and you walk up to the the counter to pay for it, what immediately happens? The the clerk says, oh, they're offering, what? A warranty. (laughs) And they immediately are trying to sell you a warranty that's good and better than the manufacturer's warranty because the reality is you can't trust the manufacturer. We live in a day and age where we're constantly told we can't trust anybody. Sad to say, but I have to raise my kids in an environment where I can't let them just head out in the block like I used to. Because I can't trust my neighbors. We live in a society where ultimately we're constantly bombarded with the reality that promises are broken and we can't trust. But it's into that context that the scriptures speak. And God promises. According to one person's count, there are some 3,573 promises in the Bible. If you're a note taker, let me say that again. 3,573 promises in the Bible. In fact, the word promise itself is used over 50 times in the scriptures. Promise, 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 promise. And we in our skeptical day and age say, yeah, right. But Paul says, no, I may be a bad dad. Paul may be a bad dad. But God, he's a good parent. And his answer is always yes through his son, Jesus Christ. See, all the Bible's promises find their yes, according to verse 20, 
in Jesus. Which forces us to ask a question amongst men. Who's this Jesus anyway? Why, why should we trust him? What is it we really know about him, right? I mean, if you, if you go to Google him, there's people arguing whether he even really existed. And those who agree that he did exist surely aren't going to necessarily side with the idea that the Christians say that he's God. He was just a good moral teacher. He had some really good things to say. But scripture depicts him not just as a man, but as the God-man. As the promised one. I want to read a verse to you. It comes from Galatians 4.4. I want you to listen to the language that's used in this text. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That one verse, Galatians 4.4, tells us that Jesus is the promised one. That he is God's own son, born of a woman. That, that he is truly the God-man. And that through this God-man, he's actually come to do something. What did he come to do? If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you never have, I encourage you to do that. I always encourage people, start in Mark, it's the shortest one. Everybody likes to read the short cliff note version, right? But as you read through the Gospels, you realize that Jesus' whole life, he was moving somewhere. He was heading somewhere. He was going somewhere. He was a man on a mission. And that mission was the cross. And so we ask, why? Why was Jesus heading to the cross? Well, Galatians 4.4 answers it. So that we, who are under the law, might receive something. Adoption. Adoption. I have a cousin who worked for one of the greatest toy companies, or toy suppliers, I guess, in the United States, and I think is Canada as well, called Toys R Us. And one of the interesting things was is that my cousin was not able to have any children. And they really wanted children deeply, but were unable to have them. And I remember when they moved forward to adopt. The joy on their faces, the faces of the parents, to be able to hold those two little guys that they got, the two brothers. One was 18 months and one was three. And what I thought, as a young, teenage kid, was, those are two of the luckiest kids in the whole stinking world. Why? Because they got adopted into a family where their dad was a distributor for all the toys in the world. Everything they could ever want, they could have. And it always seemed like they did. Well, guess what? We've been adopted by God who owns everything. And he said, you're mine. 
And I've bought you. I've purchased you. I've chosen you. I've adopted you. You're mine. And everything I have is yours. Yet like spoiled children, sometimes it's just not enough. Because we're missing all the blessing that he's given us. See, Jesus came. Jesus, the, the God himself, became flesh. Born of a woman, submitted himself to the law so that he could be perfect, so that he could die, so that what we could receive everything. That's what the story is. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus accomplished. Jesus came to die so that you and I could have all the rights and privileges of being a child of God. And therefore, the answer to us is always yes in Jesus. But see, to get the rights and the privileges, we need to be adopted. And the way of our adoption is through Christ. He's the only way we enter through that adoption. It's like one adoption agency and everybody's got to go through it. And there's, there's only one form and that one form is Christ. That's why Paul said, the answer is always yes in Christ. Many times we're asking and we're seeking and we're looking for an answer that's not in Christ. And that's why we find ourselves frustrated and lonely and guilty and heavy laden. But Christ is the hope. Christ is the answer. What I want you to see, though, is, is that, that there's a response that Paul says we should have. And it, it's at the very end of verse 20. It says this. That is why it is through him that we utter, what? Amen. You guys know what amen means? I mean, preachers love amen. Let's practice it for a second. Amen. Everybody say amen. amen. We can do better than that. Come on, we're men. Amen. amen. You know why preachers love amen? Because it fires us up. And I believe it fires God up too because here's why. It basically literally means this. So be it. So be it. That that. that that always the answer is yes in Christ, and we say, so be it. So be it. It's true. The good news of Jesus is, is that he offers us all the blessings of God. Let me talk about the blessings that are found in Jesus for a minute. If you're a note-taker, I'm going to tell you what they are. The first is your identity. The second is your community. And the third is your mission. I want you to think about each one of those for a second. That first, your identity is found in Christ. Your identity. Who you are is found in Christ. Let me give you a couple of quick verses that talk about this. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So if you just flip a couple of pages over to 2 Corinthians 5 and look at verse 21, very briefly, this is what it says. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 
That's a powerful, powerful, powerful promise that ultimately Jesus, who was righteous and perfect and sinless, took on your sin so that you could now be declared righteous. In theological terms, we we always like to talk about these things and we've named it the great exchange. Jesus gets all of our garbage and we get all of his righteousness. And he gives it to us. And now, when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you, the mess up, the screw up, the failed marriage, the, the, the hurt children, the alcoholism, the, the, the gambling problems. He doesn't see all of that. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. Because your identity is now found not in yourself, but in Jesus. Clap! That's exciting. That's good news. My identity has been changed. When I look in the mirror, the ugliness that I see, that's not what God sees. He sees beauty and perfection. It's all been changed. The new identity I have is an identity in Christ. That's why in verse 17 of chapter 5, Paul says, Behold, all things become new. We're, we're, we're new creations. The old has passed away. Do you ever feel like the old ain't passed away, Pastor Aaron? <laughs> it's shackled to my leg. And my wife keeps reminding me about it. Amen? My children keep nagging me about it. It's not what Scripture says. The promise is this. We are new creatures. The old has passed away. Thanks be to God. As, as far as the east is from the west, we're told in Scripture, is as far away as we are from our sins and our past. We need to live in that new identity. We need to live in that new triumphant identity, that victorious identity. Imagine World War II with me. Imagine in World War II that after Paris had been liberated by all of the great allied forces because of, because of uh, D-Day, that, that there are individuals that stay in their houses and never come out because they're fearful that the Germans still occupy the land. And we send great people boasting and saying, look, you're free. You're free. You've been liberated. Come out. And they say, we're not coming out. We're hiding in here. I don't believe them. That's the way many of us live our lives. And that's sinful. It's shameful. We've been given a new identity. We've been given a new person. We are now in Christ. And if God the Father who's perfect and righteous can look at us and accept us, then friends, we need to accept ourselves. We need to accept ourselves. We need to accept the victory that Christ has wrought. A new identity. A new community. Too many times Christians say, well, I don't need the church. The church is messed up. The church is a bunch of, of hypocrites and, and sinners and backbiters. I don't need the, the church. But friends, Scripture says that Jesus gave his life for the church. One of the greatest examples is found in Ephesians 5, 
where Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus and he uses this language that captures together this idea of marriage, how a husband is supposed to be for his wife. He's supposed to love her to the place where he would sacrifice himself for her. And then the example he uses is, as Christ has done for the church. We need to love the church. We don't want to see the church grow and flourish. Because why? We're part of the church. We've been given a new community. Not just a new identity for ourselves, but now we're part of a new community that is the bride of Christ. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians, the first letter he wrote. When he talks about the body being one, but having many members. I was reading that passage, 1 Corinthians 12, to my children, and we sat around the table, and I was asking them all, what kind of member are you? What do you bring to the table? Now, mind you, my children are 10 and 8 and 2. But if I can expect them to contribute to the body, surely we should contribute to the body because we're part of the new community. And we are a member. Can you imagine how a body functions if it doesn't have an arm? Or it's missing a leg? It'll it'll function. Science has proved that it can still operate, but it's more difficult, isn't it? And see, we need to understand that now we've been given a new identity in Christ, we belong to a new community in Christ, and we have a place to serve. I think I speak fairly, and I don't think Pastor Garth will come up and tackle me at this point, but one of the biggest problems we have in every church is men. Men have become passive in the church. Men have sat back and said, my wife's got it. She's a better teacher than me anyway. (laughs) She's a better leader than me. She's got better opinions than I got. She thinks more about these things. She's more intuitive. We're forcing the church to operate with the hands, without the hands and the eyes and the ears and the legs that's been given. See, we not only have a new identity, we've been placed in a new community where we're called to serve. And what does that service focus on? One thing, our mission. Jesus summed it up. I want you to think about it this way. This is the way I talk about it with my people. Is If you had one last opportunity to say something to the people that you love most before you leave them, what would it be? I mean, obviously you'd say, well, I love you, but what other instruction would you give them? Here's what Jesus says. Go. (laughs) Go make disciples. Go make disciples. Teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go. Be on mission. You have a new identity. You belong to a new community. Now go do the mission. Why? Why? Because all the promises for you are yes. You can go and know you're going to have victory. You can go and know that in the end we win. You can go and know that when you share the gospel, the Holy Spirit is the one who's actually doing the work. We just got to be the mouthpiece. That's the good news. Because all of the promises find their yes in Christ. That's our response. 
Finally, we see our assurance. Very quickly, just look at verses 21 through 22 of 2 Corinthians 1. Verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. He's anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us. And has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. See, this this whole message that Paul gives is a message of yes. The answer is yes. The mission is yes. Your identity is yes. Your community is yes. And I'm going to tell you something. It's been guaranteed that it's yes. How's that? Because you've been given the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about something Jesus said. Jesus said, it is good that I go. Some of you may have never realized Jesus said that, but Jesus actually told his disciples, it is good that I go. First time I read that, I thought, no, it's not. I'm screaming at the page. No, it's not. Imagine how the disciples felt. No, it's not. It'd be like my dad saying, Aaron, it's good that I go. No, it's not. My dad died six years ago. He's a World War II vet. I loved him immensely. Hated to see him go, but I knew he was truly going to a better place because of his relationship with Christ. But in that, it's good that I go. It's good that I go. See, Jesus was saying it in a slightly different way. It wasn't just good for Jesus that he goes. It was good for his disciples that he goes. Because now they would have the permanent indwelling seal of the Holy Spirit. You know what a seal is? I, have a, I love to read. I have a huge library. And in every one of my books, I have this little tool that I use to create a seal. It embeds on a page. And the reason I do that is because I loan books out and I want the people who borrow them to feel guilty. <laughs> I mean that, yeah. I want them to feel guilty when they, when they open it up and it's been four years and it's, it's like buried under uh, their, their baby's toys and all that and the pages are ripped out. I want them to feel guilty. But, but, what, but that seal means it belongs to somebody. And we've been given that seal. You belong to somebody. And, that, and you're valuable to somebody. You matter to somebody. Maybe you feel like tonight you don't matter to anybody else. But if you're in Christ, you matter to God. So much so that He would give His own Son for you. And He's placed His seal, His stamp on you. And He's given you His Holy Spirit as the guarantee. Amen. And because we have that seal... It's a passport that not only gets you into the United States and back to Canada, it gets you in anywhere. Because the answer is always what? You say it. Yes. I can't hear you. The answer is always what? Yes. Yes. In Christ. Let's pray. Father, I know it's warm in here and we're all shedding some pounds right now. But God, we, we are thankful that Paul took the time to remind us that the answer is yes. That, that, that we have been bought with a price. That no matter how much sin debt we've accumulated, Jesus has paid it all. And we have been given a new identity, a new community, and a new purpose, a new mission for life. 
And you've given us a guarantee. The down payment of that investment. The Holy Spirit. Who's the guarantee of our yes in Christ. God, for any of us tonight who are struggling with the idea that God could never accept me, help us to realize that Jesus is the yes for all who believe. And God, help us to believe. For those of us that, that maybe feel that we're not needed, God, help us to step up and and to be on mission. Help us to live lives of gratitude for all the grace that we've been shown. We know we were guilty, and we know we've been shown grace, but God, we haven't been living a life of gratitude. So God, help us to start to do that. Help us to start to roll up our sleeves and to invest in the community that you sent your son to die for. A community that matters to you immensely. God, help us to see our lives as missionaries, as ambassadors. Help us to remember that we have been given the, the ministry of reconciliation. As that letter for Paul brought repentance to others, God, you, we know that you can use our lips, our message of Christ's work to bring reconciliation for others, for whole families. And God, I pray that we would believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. Because the answer is always yes in Christ. God, help us to see the victory. Help us to see the hope. And help us to say, Amen. Amen.